Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. and welcome again to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, downloading us and all of that. Uh, My first job today is to tell you about our new subscription offer, and it's a good one. And briefly, it is you now will get 30 issues for the price of 24. That's 30 Motorsport Magazines for the price of 24. Works out at £89. Or you can get 15 editions for the price of 12, and that works out at £49. Both offers good. First one better, I'd say, 30 for 24. Um, For one year's subscription, you will get a Motorsport Magazine binder. And for two years, (laughs) you'll get two Motorsport Magazine binders. This is thoroughly logical. Three years? I don't have three years. Thank you, Nigel. Okay. For those of you who are renewing your subscription for one year, uh, you will receive a binder. For two years, a motorsport cooler bag. And for a digital subscription, 12 months and over, again, you will receive a cooler bag. I will not be repeating this at the end of our podcast, so I hope you've all made a little note of that. Right, uh, today uh, on Motorsport Magazine, we have with us Tony Brooks. For the first time, his debut appearance on our podcast. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. Um, we were just talking a moment ago <laughs> about uh, the modern world, weren't we? And uh, communications, mobile phones, uh, emails, and all of that. And it, it, occur- it, it suddenly occurred to me, can you imagine when you were racing Grand Prix cars that you would have been talking to the pits? How would you have felt about that? Well, it's a great help, of course. Um, I mean, communicating with the pits uh, as they do today, uh, you've got the um, reassurance, reassurance that you've got uh, a great number of people working for you, working out the best strategy for you, the best tactics and so on. And um, it's also, you know, very supportive, you know, to feel that uh, you're not out there alone. <laughs> against uh, the other um, 21 drivers. So I think it's a very great plus. Um, from our side, of course, uh, we had to do our, all our own judgment as to where, when to go slow, uh, which is very rarely, and when we had to step up uh, the um, step on the gas. And, um, you know, so you're, you were entirely on your own, in fact. All you had to rely on was a, a pit board, and uh, very often uh, you couldn't see it because you were going past so far. 
so fast or it was too near the next corner and uh, the information you could get on the pit board was extremely limited so we were uh, really um, uh, very much on our own and I think you know psychologically it must be very a very strong uh, feeling of support you know to have radio communication as they have today and people working out for you what was the best tactics and uh, you know to be told that if you um, improve your lap time by 0.2 of a second you know you'll uh, you'll catch the man in front and hopefully win the race um, you had to try and do that in your head uh, in, in our day but um, you know um, it was a solo job and I suppose in a sense we probably got more satisfaction from uh, the way we were having to uh, cope with everything um, uh, on our own shoulders as it were nice no, something <coughs> struck me actually Tony you I remember you telling me about Sebring in 59. Yes. When you, the world championship was at stake. Yes. Um, but you had the touch with Von Tripps. Yes. I think it was on the first lap, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. And felt absolutely obligated to yourself to come yes. in to have the car checked over. Correct, yes. And of course, in today's world, you know, they would know in the pits immediately how much of a problem you had and they exactly. would be able to com communicate. So they could have said to you in that situation don't worry it's fine yes uh, and you would have had the peace of mind to you know to believe them and yes well uh, and, uh, indeed and i mean that's I, another I, great yeah. difference uh, between our time and uh, and today and uh, that's one of <laughs> of a great many and um uh yes i it was it was almost unfortunate sebring because uh, of course um uh, I should have been on the front row alongside um, Jack Brabham and Sterling Moss, but a certain gentleman uh, missed out a corner uh, by the name Harry of Harry Shell. <laughs> and, um, of course, he was given the lap time that he never, ever achieved, and it pushed me off the front row onto the second row, which wasn't the end of the world. Uh, but, unfortunately, it pushed me in front of uh, uh, Taffy Von Tricks because he was on the third row, and he was desperately trying to get himself a, a, a regular place in the Formula One uh, Ferrari team. And I think his psychology was um, the best way to try and do this is to, um, you know, follow the, uh, the number one driver and hopefully um, stay on his tail. Well, he did more than stay on my tail. He ran me up the backside. And, of course, the, you know, it was quite an impact, but uh, it was something that, you know, no one was able to, to judge whether it was serious or not. And um, I had made a firm resolution to myself that um, because of my accident at Le Mans with the Aston Martin and uh, with the BRM at Silverstone in uh, 56, the British Grand Prix, both of which were stupid uh, accidents, not driver error as such, because I shouldn't have been driving the BRM with a sticking throttle and I shouldn't have been fiddling around with the, the Aston Martin gearbox stuck in fourth gear. So I then made a resolve that, uh, you know, if there was anything, that I would drive a car up to the maximum of its capability even with its uh, uh, and it, even if it wasn't perfect but um, I would not try and drive a car that was um, substandard you know up to uh, what would normally be its uh, its its limit uh, of performance and I you know that was a firm resolution you know you make some resolutions that I've got to you know got to stick to that and if I had not come into the pits you know I would have felt that I'd have you know betrayed myself betrayed my uh, uh, my my inner inner self and um, 
I had to force myself to come in because the easiest thing was to continue because I knew in coming into the pits, you know, that I'd blown the, the World Drivers' Championship. So I'm very proud that I had the, uh, the courage to, um, to make that decision. And, you know, I would make the same decision again. And, even, uh, even though the way it turned out, uh, you know, you, had you not stopped, you, you almost certainly would have been world champion. Well, that's that right, because yeah. uh, poor old Jack, well, I say poor old Jack, he was always running out of fuel because he, he used to try and keep too little fuel in the, in the, in the car you know half a gallon he wanted uh, at the end of the race and he got caught out more than once and he got ca caught out on this occasion and and sterling was out uh, with mechanical trouble so as you say you know it may well have cost me the uh, the championship but um uh, you know, I'm here today uh, uh, telling you about the situation and if I hadn't uh, made that resolution and stuck to it, I may not have been. But Tony, you said that um, you'd have felt you'd betrayed yourself if you hadn't pulled in and stopped. Yes. But supposing you had gone through, perhaps won the race and the championship, would you still have felt a sense of betrayal to yourself? Well, yes, I would, because, I mean, I'd only got away with it because, uh, in, in fact, um, you know, there wasn't any, any serious mechanical problem. So, um, uh, yeah, because, I mean, the problem was, I, as, as, um, uh, as uh, Nigel has pointed out, you know, I could not assess, as I can today, that, in fact, there was no significant damage to the car. And, uh, you know, I would be betraying myself if I'd, I had continued, even though... Uh, I'd continued and, and uh, you know, won the race uh, and the championship because I resolved myself that if you, you know, if it wasn't right, you didn't continue, you know, until you were satisfied it was right. So, yes, is the answer to your question. Yeah. I asked Sterling once, what, you know, what he would have done in your position. And I, I, you know the answer before I tell I you. I do, don't. indeed. Well, you but, know. But, he, but, but of course, what Sterling says is, um, oh, I'd have gone on, boy, you know. Or he said, you know, I wouldn't have done what Tony does. I'm not that bright. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what Sterling would have done, and, and uh, so would uh, a great many others. Um, but but um, it was the intelligent You know, we're different characters, and thank goodness for that. We're all the same. It'd be a pretty boring world, wouldn't it? Also, also, we also we might not have seen you and Sterling Moss driving the Aston Martin round Goodwood a couple of weeks ago, which was a fantastic sight. And uh, you know, thank goodness that's what we are seeing today. Well, yes, indeed, and I, I had one of my greatest compliments, in fact, at the uh, Goodwood uh, Festival of Speed because um, I think it was uh, who was it? Anyway, somebody was pulling his leg and. Uh, about uh, risking his neck, you know, being driven down around the circuit by me. And um, Sterling uh, was cl clearly said that I was the only person he'd trust to drive him around the circuit. <laughs> so I took that as a, a great big slap on Actually, the back. Actually, Dan <laughs> said, Gurney said exactly the same thing 12 months ago when the uh, Testarossa. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. I was there when you and Sterling got out of the DBR1. And, yes. uh, and I heard you lean over to Sterling and say, I haven't pushed your heart rate up, have I, Sterling? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, well, he's a glutton for punishment because I offered him the drive all three days, you know, but he turned it down. So uh, I thought the second day he might have said, no, no, I'll drive, um, and certainly the third day. But um, no, I got, uh, I got approval three times. So I felt very pleased. I must say one of the really wonderful things about um, Motorsport magazine is that we, we're lucky enough to speak to all of you guys um, who, who are now so fit and well and your memories are so fantastic and it, it is a real privilege but at the time you were racing I assume you never ever thought that you know you would have the profile that you do now if you like it 
It was just something not. you did when yes. you were young. Was no, it? absolutely not. Indeed, I mean, I, I kept a, a racing journal um, um, at the time simply because I wanted to um, benefit from experience at a circuit the next year that I went there. It was never with any intention of writing an autobiography, and the idea of an autobiography I resisted for 50, uh, nearly 50 years uh, successfully, but eventually um, failed, you know. Um, but um, so, uh, uh, yes, I was, um, I certainly um, would have, um, uh, would have uh, resisted the, um, uh, sorry, the, the question again was? Well, it wasn't really a question. It was, it was more a statement of saying that, you know, at the time, yes, you, indeed. you couldn't sorry. have imagined yes, no, no. that you and Sterling I, I, would be... I sidetracked myself and lost the, lost the theme. No, absolutely. So I just kept my racing journal purely for uh, motor racing purposes sure. to um, ensure that I made a better uh, job the next time I went to the circuit because I would have learned certain things and made notes of certain things. And uh, that was the only, time, only reason I kept uh, a racing journal, never with any intention of writing uh, an autobiography. As I've already said, that um, I resisted for a great many years, but um, eventually um, family pressure became unbearable, so I had to get them off my back. Yeah. And you wrote it all yourself. I did indeed, you? and yeah, did all the research. The, yeah, that was the yeah. hard work, you know, the uh, research, because, um, I mean, we were writing about so many years ago, you know, it's... Um, so, um, and I, I, know, I know that people are just looking for uh, mistakes, so I was desperately trying to make sure that uh, uh, minimise uh, the chance of people saying, oh, that's a load of rubbish. So I did my research very thoroughly and, um, and hopefully successfully. And uh, that, was the, uh, that, was the, that was the hard part. And um, as I say, the, the racing journal was invaluable, but uh, never prepared, uh, never uh, started with the intention of ever, ever uh, writing, um, uh, writing an autobiography. Tony, do you find that there's more interest in the history now than there was, say, 20 years after you'd retired from racing? Oh, yes, I think so, because, um, uh, because in fact, um, uh, you know, there's so much coverage now of, um, of, of um, motor racing, uh, Grand Prix racing in particular. They, um, uh, we, I mean, there was very little TV in my day, and... Um, and there are very few clips of, uh, of, of the races in which um, which are parti participated. So the um, uh, the, the interest um, is so much uh, greater, uh, created by television, which also encourages the press to, to cover it. And um, you know, people are more and more interested in um, in in what happened before. So, um, uh, so I there think, are more I think demands on your time than ever. Well, yes, I, I suppose so. But I mean, the, the Syracuse Grand Prix, I think, uh, win in 55, I think it, I don't think you got a paragraph in, um, in most of the, <laughs> most of the national papers. I think the Telegraph might have done something. So there's nothing. I mean, uh, today, um, uh, you know, it would be a totally different story. So the, the answer is yes, uh, there's no comparison. Uh, about the interest in uh, past motor racing today with past motor racing five or six, ten years after, after the events. Tony, that year you're talking about 55 when you won at yeah. Syracuse, but the first time you ever sat in a Formula One car. Correct. Um, but I, I, at Spa this year, um, on the Thursday evening at Spa, Shell showed us a, a, a film which was recently rediscovered yes. and has been remastered and it's perfect now, of the 55 Grand Prix. Uh, of, of Spa, the Belgium Grand yeah, Prix, 55, yeah. yes. 
And um, it's just, it was fascinating, the, the response, apart from anything else, of, of people, particularly young people who were there, yes. including Alonzo and Massa, yes. who were both there because of Shell's links with Ferrari. Yes. And, and, I mean, Fernando was literally stunned by what a Grand Prix circuit was in 1955. Yes. He, he, he was just... Because yeah. there's one part, uh, when they're going around the circuit in, in a road car, and the... Um, and the narrator says, um, I think it was Hollowell, or no, it was La Carriere, that's right, on the, on the, the, the climb back up again, uh, which he says, uh, the experts take almost flat out, uh, but there's a ditch waiting for an over, for a misjudged exit. <laughs> and you can imagine, you know, for, for, for a current Grand Prix driver, yes. to literally, to say, I mean, it wasn't, it was a ditch, but I mean, it was more of a culvert. Yes. And you went down there, and then exactly. the, the only thing beyond yeah. was a barbed wire fence. Yes. yes. And um, I, I, I watched it, and I've done how many times I've watched it since. Yeah. Um, but at the same, it was all in my head the whole time. It was your absolute favourite circuit. Yes. Well, exactly. I mean, this might be a good point to to um, to, to discuss the the difference between racing in the fifties and racing today. You know, people sort of, it's a question that one gets asked uh, very frequently and um, I think they expect you to talk about the cars, you know, and of course the only thing in common really is they have uh, five wheels, you know, four road wheels and a steering wheel, but I'm not sure whether it's a steering wheel or a, uh, um, uh, an instrument today uh, <laughs> for the one cars of a day. So that, um, uh, so the, the cars, uh, as I say, there's uh, uh, very little in common with them. What the real difference is, is a psychological challenge. Because in our day, as you were touching on, because we're racing on ordinary circuits, or circuits that very closely resembled um, ordinary circuits, even Norton Park was artificial, but you know, there were many places you could make, uh, have a serious accident there. So we were driving on uh, um, what were, in effect, ordinary roads. And therefore, any one mistake could be your last, because uh, whether you in fact finished up in a ditch, turned over in a ditch, or against a telegraph pole, or a stone wall, or uh, even a telegraph pole, a or, or a spire booth, house, yes, yeah. you know, was entirely in the lap of the gods. Once you made uh, any one mistake, could be, you know, f very serious and, and possibly fatal. Whereas today, because of the strength of the cars and the design of the circuits the chances of seriously hurting yourself are absolutely minimal. I mean, they're above zero, but I mean, in my opinion, not an awful lot above zero, because you can run off the circuits, and even if you run a long way off the circuits, if you come across, uh, up against an immovable, immovable object, it has absorption, you know, absorption of the, of the impact to a certain degree. And, um, of course, uh, in the cars of today, because of the carbon capsule, you can have 170 mile an hour accidents and you get out and uh, there you see um, old Weber, you know, mm. briskly walking to have a shower you know, after this 170 mile an hour accident. And, uh, you know, so where's, where's, my, where's my second car, not what's the date of the funeral, you know? So it had to get safer. So I'm not against that, you know, it had to get safer. But, you know, when you're driving, trying to go faster than your competitors, knowing that any one mistake could be your last, and trying to go faster than your competitors, knowing that because of the strength of the cars and the design of the circuits, the chances of seriously hurting yourself are very low indeed. That is a totally different, you know, psychological uh, challenge. 
And, uh, you know, therefore, that's, that's one of many reasons why, in my view, you cannot compare different uh, different eras. You know, winning races like Fangio did when you were driving on ordinary roads is a totally different challenge to winning uh, races like uh, uh, Vettel seems to be doing at the moment, you know, with, um, on, on, uh, with such a safe car and such a safe circuits. You know, the analogy I give is, so it had to get safer. Motor racing, Grand Prix motor, it had to get safer. But in getting safer, in my view, it became a different sport. And the analogy I, I, I make is, would mountaineering be the same sport if in fact you had a harness around your body with a self-adjusting cable from the harness to the, the mountain, the top of the mountain? Would that still be mountaineering? You know, I suggest it would not. And that's what's happened to Formula One. It had to happen because in our day, there were three to four top drivers a year on average killed throughout the 50s, you know, which was a very, you know, a, a, a very, um, a, you know, substantial uh, uh, death rate. And, uh, you know, that had to come down. But if we didn't wish to take the risk, we didn't know was making his motor race, so you didn't participate. Um, so that uh, that for me is is the is is the difference, and um, as I say, uh, for third time, it had to get safer, and I accept all that. But it has, in getting safer, in my view, it's no longer Grand Prix motor racing; it's uh, Grand Prix spectacular, but Tony, which it does uh, organised by a certain gentleman. Uh, <laughs> but it does, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bernie Ecclestone, you're referring oh, to. Him, oh, yes. Well, funny you should mention that. Yes, yes. Might just be. It's a sport, a sport, sport spectacular today. In the way he's managed, it's quite exciting. You know, even the last race, we didn't quite. Well, no, we didn't know who was going to win there. But you know, it's still quite exciting. It's a in TV the fact show. That, yes. Uh, you know, you, you're still not quite sure who's going to win. But I mean, it's all a contrivance with DRS and. and it is. Uh, and um, and curs, you know, and and well, tires that fall off the cliff. I think to sound uh, sound that, with that, it. That's the phrase. To that's the phrase. mountaineering yeah. phrase, actually, isn't it? I mean, with all these artificial contrivances, yeah. the result is well, even the general public, you know, can't be sure who's going to win the race. No, but I'm, it does I'm rather beg the question, Tony, as to why um, uh, a well-educated, highly intelligent man who was going to be a dentist decided to take these risks. Why, why, why we, you know, I mean, the picture you've painted is, is horrific. <laughs> well, it, 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 um, it, it was dangerous, but the thing is, um, as I mentioned, make quite clear in my genuine autobiography, that, you know, I always drove within the limits of my natural ability. I was fortunate in that I was born, nothing clever about that, I was born with um, a, a generous portion of natural ability and I over I always drove within it you know I never ever psyched myself up you know to say well I'm not sure whether I can take this corner flat but I'll jolly well screw you know shut my eyes as a certain gentleman did uh, on occasions shut my eyes and I will do it I never ever did that so although I accepted motorsport was a dangerous sport I never frightened myself through actions of my own, but I accepted that other things could frighten me. I mean, I could come round a corner and find a car in the way, or oil on the circuit, and you, a, 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 a regular hazard which you had, which you never see today, oil on the circuit, come round, and you're suddenly spinning out of control. So yes, you'd be frightened then, 
but that's not through any your driving or anything under your control. So I would never ever reckon to frighten myself as a result of what I was doing. But I accepted that I was in a, a dangerous sport. Now I, I didn't. I wasn't so stupid as to think it couldn't happen to me. But I thought that you know I um, drove in a way where uh, I could minimise the chances of it happening to me. There was a programme on Radio 4 uh, just recently talking about risk statistics. Yeah. And they started from the premise basically that with uh, the James Hunt, uh, Nicky Lauda film coming out, there were a lot of figures bandied about about how many people were killed and uh, how yeah. long you might last in Formula yes. One at the time. Yeah. And I think their premise was it can't be as bad as that. And they went over all the statistics and decided that more or less it was. Indeed. They, I mean, perhaps Jackie's figure of a two and three chance of dying was slightly exaggerated. Yes. But other than that, the conclusion was it was exceptionally yes. dangerous. It and was. to do five continuous yes. years was yes. an extraordinary achievement. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's why that was, you know, Grand Prix motor racing and Formula One today is not the same sport. Absolutely. In my, in my humble but opinion. In fact, in the context of what we've just been talking about, it's still amazing to me in a way that Spa was your favourite. Because St Sterling, Spa, Spa was your favourite yes. circuit. Now Sterling yes. says, and racing drivers don't often admit things like this, but Sterling just says, no, no, Tony was better than I was at Spa, and that's the end of it. He said what, sorry? He said Tony was better than I was oh, at Spa, I see. and that's well, the end of it. Oh, very kind, yes. So, uh, but when you're saying you never had to psych yourself up, or yes, not even when you were going for pole position at Spa. No, no, never. You see, the thing is that um, the fact the circuit was dangerous, um, I knew it was there, but I never worried about it because I never planned to go off the road. Which <laughs> <laughs> so, sounds perhaps big-headed, but um, you know that was my philosophy. So. Whether it's Spa, Nürburgring, or Silverstone, I wouldn't drive any more differently at Silverstone because you know because you could you know do faux pas there and, and get away with them. Um, every circuit was the same. So the fact I was at Silverstone, I wouldn't you know go relatively speaking quicker than I would at Spa or Nürburgring. I would drive exactly the same way at all these circuits. But of course, that wasn't the case with 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 many drivers. You know, many drivers were much faster on you know the should we call them the aerodrome type circuits than yeah. the true road circuits because I assume that they you know felt that if I have an accident, you know, um, the chances of getting seriously hurt are not as high as at Nurburgring and Spa. I mean, those thoughts would never ever occur to me. But I think it did to some drivers. And okay, well then. They were still very successful, but um, they obviously had a different uh, a mental approach to their driving than, than I did. Tony, some people after a racing career looked for other sports where they got excitement and risk, even if it was simply something like water skiing where you're not so likely to get injured. Did you try for those thrills anywhere else? No, I tried. Um, I tried the retail motor trade and drive the, the <laughs> <laughs> dived in the re in the deep end there because what I knew about uh, the motor trade and uh, and sixpence uh, would probably buy, bought me an ice cream in those days. But um, so um, you know, so this is my challenge. You know, not exactly a sport, I suppose, except you'd accept the analogy of I was diving in the deep end and you either swim or you sink, and I fortunately managed to swim. Um, so that was my challenge. I mean, for 10 years or so, you know, I didn't really know a lot about what was going on in motor racing because I was so totally absorbed with uh, 
with trying to build um, a business from zero and, and having just um, the benefit of a, of a good degree um, to, to help me think it through and, and uh, do hopefully uh, the sensible things, the logical things in, in um, learning about business and, and building it up. So that was my challenge, I suppose. So. Um, instead of a sport, I suppose I took the retail side trade as the as the challenge. And is it the case? Uh, it's been suggested that you switched back from Ferrari to a British team, the Yeoman yes. uh, Credit team, in order to promote yourself as in selling British cars. Absolutely no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was. I mean, one of I, I, you know, I'm alive, so I mean, I have, uh, I, don't, I have no reason for, uh, you know, serious regrets about my motor racing. But with the benefit of wonderful skill called hindsight, I should have retired at the end of '59, uh, with uh, with the when I finished with Ferrari. Um, Perhaps you could have uh, contested Colonel Ronnie Hoare's concession for uh, Ferraris in the UK. Oh well, maybe, maybe. But coming back to motor racing, um, no, I seriously gave I gave serious thought to retiring at the end of '59. Not least because I got married and we started a family, and I had a perfectly good means of earning a living, dentistry, and. Um, uh, but what uh, tempted me to continue, because I still have the motor racing bug, it wasn't that I you know, ex exterminated it, uh, used it up, um, was Tony Vanderville, uh, was, uh, he retired in, in uh, announced his retirement in January uh, uh, 50, uh, sorry, yes, 59, um, and um, I drove for Ferrari in 59. Uh, and at the end of '59, Tony Vanderbilt said, "Oh, come and you know, I'm going to build a, a lot. Well, what was effectively a, a Lotus put together properly, um, with a with a Van Wall with a Van Wall engine in it. And of course, the Van Wall engine was proven. And of course, you know, in paper, that was a, a, a very competitive car. I mean, uh, um, it was as, as a standard of, of, of engineering. The Van Wall team had, you know, no need to apologise to anybody else. So." The standard of the Van Wall engineering, uh, with a Votus and and uh, a Van Wall engine in it, you know, it really on paper had the chance of, uh, of of being Grand Prix winner. And of course, I bought this garage at the end of uh, uh, December '59, and it was really just a four pump, very old fashioned, out uh, out of date petrol pump, four pump village petrol station in effect. So. Um, uh, and it wasn't enough, you know, good enough to attract a, a, somebody worthy of the, of the term manager. So I realised it would have to be hands-on job by me. So I thought, well, my, you know, yes, I, I don't want a full-time motor racing season, you know, with sports cars and and uh, uh, Formula Two and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I said, you know, it'd be very nice to do eight Grand Prix, you know, driving this Lotus Van Wall. So. That's what stopped me from retiring at the end of '59, um, and unfortunately, uh, Tony Vanderbilt never came up with the goods. I mean, I drove it once at Snetterton in practice, and I don't know quite what happened. Uh, he wasn't very well. I think he never quite got over poor old Stuart Lewis Evans' death at uh, um, uh, Morocco in '58. Um, anyway, he, he didn't. He didn't. You know, he, he he switched off. He didn't really follow through with his Lotus. So. Well, there was still a sort of half-hearted development of the, of the old 
front engine car yeah, oh, exactly, going on at the same exactly. time. You know, it? which he asked me to drive a bit. So, you know, but it was a Lotus, the idea of a Lotus fan wall, properly, properly built and, and properly uh, um, engineered, uh, you know, that decided me to continue motor racing. But then when it became obvious that he'd gone off the boil, um, uh, you know, all the decent drives had gone. And, you know, having made the psychological decision I was going to continue, what I should have done is take... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The sabbatical. Um, but, you know, nobody had ever taken a and, sabbatical And, and then driven for Ferrari again in 61, and I'm, you would have won the world championship. Well, you would have walked it. I was, aware, I was aware of how big my decision was in 60. It wasn't a question of, of, of um, you know, having uh, you know, great foresight and afterwards saying. I knew that the, the 1961 uh, champion would most probably be a Ferrari simply because all the Brits were arguing about the new formula. One, oh no, not one and a half. They spent their time arguing it should stay two and a half. And uh, Ferrari already had uh, a, a Grand Prix winning, um, or at least a race winning, one and a half litre in, in 57, yeah. 57, 58. It's the car, you know, it's already there. So I knew what I was doing in giving up the Ferrari thing, but, um, uh, uh, you know, I had decided that I didn't want to motor race for the rest of my life and that in buying this motor business, because I thought I would, you know, um, go into motor business, into the motor business. So having decided I wanted to buy it so small, it would need hands-on. So I was, you know, semi-retiring, but tempted by the Lotus Fanwall prospect. So, but when it became clear that he, you know, was not going to follow through with this in a serious way, I realised I was there without a drive, and you know, frankly, I should have taken a sabbatical. So I took, uh, I drove for uh, um, uh, Yeoman Credit, and uh, of course, the 1959 Cooper in 1960 is uh, not really competitive. Particularly that year, there's a dramatic move forward. You know, from the 59, it was a different decade of car in every sense. It was a new decade. It was a new decade in terms of design. It was so such a dramatic step forward. Because I was absolutely nowhere with a two and a half litre 1959 Cooper. So. I, t I shouldn't have done that, I should have done a sabbatical, so I took what was available, having made the decision I was going to continue that uh, that year. So, you know, that's one of my, you know, serious mistakes I made in, in, in motor racing. I should have, uh, I should have either retired or taken, uh, taken a sabbatical. If I'd taken a sabbatical, I think I would probably have retired and realised that, uh, you know, that, um, that, that, that it was time to, to, to quit. Tony, tell, can you tell us something about driving... Uh, uh, driving as an Englishman for Ferrari? 
Uh, well, I never had any problem with uh, with Ferrari. Um, uh, you know, on, on, on here's uh, a lot of criticism about Ferrari, but I, I suppose I only saw him twice, really. Once was uh, once across uh, across the table to discuss our terms, um, which um, uh, which we took about three quarters of an hour, and I didn't have a. Uh, um, a legal man on the left and an accountant on the right. You know, we just discussed uh, discussed the terms uh, for um, driving for uh, Ferrari in 1959. And um, what I was amazed was that um, he agreed to my condition that please, um, I'll drive your sports cars, but not at Le Mans. Um, I'd had enough of Le Mans. I want to go, and go into that. You, you can mention another question. So very surprisingly, I mean, considering how important Le Mans was to Ferrari, um, uh, he uh, he said, "Yeah, well, fine, great." And um, he went on to explain that you did, he didn't appoint number one, two, three drivers. You know, he just decided to let the season develop, and whoever looked like the most likely. Uh, uh, who had the best chance of winning the world championship? He became number one driver, which uh, fortunately um, fell on my fell on my shoulders. Although I didn't deliver, um, so uh, that was a very cordial meeting. It really was, and um, you know he was coming over as very friendly. Mind the fact I spoke Italian probably helped, yes. and the fact I had a, an, a rather attractive uh, Italian lady by my <laughs> side uh, probably didn't do us any harm either. And um, so we had a very cordial meeting, and the only other time I met him was um, the only race, the only time he had attended uh, a Formula One event was practice at uh, the Italian Grand Prix in September. And uh, we had a bit of a chat there, and uh, I, I sort of made uh, about a tenth of a second slower than Sterling, who was on pole, so quite cordial again. So I never had any problem with Ferrari. And um, I never got nobody's try, ever tried to psych me up, you know. They you know get one driver against another, and you know we had a very very happy team, and I have a wonderful photograph of uh, Phil, Dan, and myself, you know, where you can see just in the photograph how the, the how the camaraderie, how strong it was. But we were deadly competitive, yeah, but none of this dirty stuff, you know, and so on. It was just straightforward fight. We'd still try desperately hard to beat the other in practice and in the race. Uh, but there was camaraderie, and of course the, th the fourth member was uh, Cliff Allison. Mm -hmm. So the fact it was an Anglo-American team may have helped. Whether anybody tried to psych the others up against me, I don't know. I, 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 I doubt it. I never heard of anything like that, and certainly nobody tried to uh, wind me up and say, "Oh, do you know, old Phil Hill is doing, you know, doing this and doing that and doing the other." Nobody ever tried to uh, to, to to wind me up. No. At Ferrari, so it was a very, very enjoyable year, not least because of my uh, teammates there. And I think also, just when you were talking earlier on about um, how the attitude to driving was different in those days, I think there, there was an etiquette certainly then that doesn't exist now. But probably part of that was was um, self-preservation, wasn't it? Because Phil Phil always used to say, you absolutely did not want to start interlocking wheels. No, Because if you right. got upside down... Yes, yes. You know? Yes. Um, yes, it, it was uh, obviously self-preservation would be there. But I think apart from that, there was a genuine camaraderie. And the analogy I make again in this, in this book, a book of mine, is, I, I, and I think... We had much in common with the, the spirit that, that was in the, between the, the Spitfire pilots, uh, Spitfire Hurricane pilots in the 
you know, in the, in the Second World War, you know, because they would go out together, run across the Karmic, get into their planes and try to, and two or three of them wouldn't come back, mm. you know, and I think that created a, a sense of camaraderie and I, I think there was an element of that with, you know, between Grand Prix drivers in our day because when you're sharing danger, and it really was because, you know, uh, I mean, it was in, I, I, I realised when I was uh, writing that um, in the 1957 uh, Grand Prix at um, uh, Pescara, uh, when I, as I say, I, I worked it out, and it, you know, four of those drivers in that race, two years later, were dead. You know, um, so I think this sense, certainly, a sense of self-preservation, deterred you from doing anything stupid. But I think there was a genuine, underlying sense of camaraderie, as per I think existed in the, in in the Second World War. Gordon, I mean, I was uh, just wondering whether you drove for two. British teams headed by major industrialists. Yes. I wondered whether there were any similarities uh, between Sir Alfred Owen at BRM and Tony Vanderville of Van Wall. Um, no, I don't think so, really. Um, well, you know, similarities, you were saying. Well, were they completely different people? Yes, I think so. You were saying um, um, Owen and, and Vanderville, yes. Well, no, Owen was, you know, hands-off, really. I mean, he used to leave it to, to, uh, to um, Raymond Mays and uh, Tony Rudd and uh, so on. Now, he, um, well, I, I don't know, I don't think I met him more than once. But mind you, I've just said about the same about Ferrari, about tw twice with Ferrari and maybe once with, uh, with Owen. Oh, no, Tony Vander was a totally different kettle of fish. I mean, he was really... Into uh, into the team, and uh, I only ever raced or practiced uh, the Van Wall once, uh, and I'm talking about practice and the race without Tony Van Der Waal being there. Um, I forget which race it was; it doesn't really matter. And that was only because he had a most urgent business appointment in Canada, and he wasn't there. But all the other time, um, he would be there, practice and um, and the race. But he didn't interfere. Uh, I think he left. Uh, um, he, he let the team manager, you know, run the show. But he could see what was happening, and um, uh, you know, people. You see, people like Ferrari and, and, and Owen would have to rely on reports <laughs> from their yeah. managers, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they weren't always objective. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and and the most likely culprits, you know, where things didn't go well, were the drivers. Yes. Yeah, it had to be the drivers. So you know, so nobody, uh, nobody uh, could or would want to waste their time with Tony Vanderbilt. He knew what was going on. So there was a, a distinct difference between Tony Vanderbilt and, and Owen, and I've thrown in uh, Enzo Ferrari as well, because you know, managers have got you know they've got a job. They've got to preserve their jobs. Are they going to say you know I made a right mess of the. Uh, you know, tactics of this race and so on and so forth. No, they're not. They're going to have to find somebody, somebody else to blame. So, mm. uh, Tony Vanderbilt knew how it was. Tony, I, when I was reading the book, um, and I confess, if I had ever known this, I'd forgotten it. You're talking about more than once you turned down an offer to drive for Colin Chapman. Correct. <laughs> Twice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and now then, how do we discuss this? <laughs> the, fragility of the, the fragility of the cars, are we talking I about? I was trying to find a more subtle way of putting it, but that will do absolutely fine, Rob, yes. Yeah. Extreme yeah. Yes, yeah. It, I mean, 
Um, and in fact, you know, if you talk to Sterling about, um, I mean, that huge accident he had at Spa, yeah. for instance, at, at Bournemouth, um, and he, he had exactly the same concerns, you know, that everybody else. I mean, I remember stories in his island used to tell me, you know, about shunt at Spa and come in, lad, and then sellotape it together again, and off I go. Yes. But, um, uh, yes, but, but you, Sterling did drive loads. He did, absolutely. Yes. But you, you were, I mean, I think, if I can paraphrase the book, I mean, you did think Chapman was a genius. Yes, But absolutely. you just thought he took things too close to the edge. Yes, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, no, I mean, he was, he was absolutely brilliant. But, um, uh, as I've said, my philosophy was, you know, danger, uh, motor racing was dangerous enough without introducing another dangerous element, which you didn't have to introduce. And to me, as I say, the guy was 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 brilliant. But um, I, I didn't uh, uh, I didn't feel you know the cars were um, robust enough. And um, you know there were uh, numerous examples uh, at the time. I mean, he wrote to me well twice. I think it must have been to to join him for the sixty. Uh, season and and the sixty one season yes that would be it those two seasons and I said well thank you very much indeed but um, uh, I think I made some sort of excuse in fact even in an article I had to write for probably the Observer um, uh, when I was asked you know why you're driving for Ferrari um, uh, I um, was it for yes anyway uh, I I didn't I didn't give my genuine reason for not driving for Lotus, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with having some concern for, for him. And, and, you know, there's something I've never understood as to how Jim Clark could cope with the, uh, the situation, you know, um, because, I mean, uh, Jim was a very, very successful, very, very good driver and so on. Um, but I, I always think, uh, whenever I think of Jim Clark, I think of Colin Chapman because, you know, you know he gave... Um, uh, he gave uh, Colin Chapman gave Jim a car that was ahead of the pace most of the time and on the pace I think on the, on the other times which helped him I mean obviously if Jim hadn't been brilliant he still wouldn't have won his 25 Grand Prix but I, I you know I can't separate the two the same as I can't separate Vettel and uh, Adrian Newey at the present moment but um, uh, so um, no, I, I think he was brilliant, but um, uh, I, I, I would prefer to have more robust cars and, and how Jim was able to handle that mentally, I mm. find astonishing. Mm. It's interesting. Tony, um, we have some questions from our readers, um, oh, right. our motorsport readers. Um, and the first one comes from Stephen Alistair Campbell. Mm -hmm. Two Christian names, Stephen Alistair Campbell. He wants to know, um, what are your memories of living in Duncanfield and then in Cheshire, which he, which he says is a, an unlikely place for a famous racing driver? <laughs> I'm not quite nothing sure wrong with Cheshire, that means an unlikely that place for a... I would, I'm not saying there's anything <laughs> wrong with Cheshire. No, no, that's right, no. Well, uh, you know, my father was in dental practice there and uh, we lived at um, his house, uh, what, the house where I lived was his practice, you know, two rooms, uh, two rooms given over to one to the surgery, one to the waiting room, the rest we occupied. And um, we were next to a, a Unitarian church, which across the way. And um, again, something I mentioned in, in my book is that um, he says it's an unlikely place for um, a racing driver to grow up from. I'm not 
quite sure I comprehend that, but what was uh, an unlikely situation was my bedroom overlooked the church graveyard. <laughs> so, so, so uh, yes, it was a bit. Of, maybe he's got a point. Maybe uh, maybe he's read the book and he, he's picking up on that point. But uh, no, I mean, you know, the, nor the northerners are a tough lot, you know. And I yeah, mean, yes, uh, you know, you give them a job to do and they get stuck in and they, and they yeah. do it. So uh, yes, um, uh, you know, it was. Um, no, I think it was a, a good schooling. No, no nonsense. No, uh, no nonsense. No snobbery. No. You know, facts were facts, and uh, yeah. you know you've got on with it. But uh, as I say, the courtyard, uh, the courtyard, the church, <laughs> the graveyard was perhaps an unlikely uh, uh, outlook for a, 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 a racing driver <laughs> for going into such a dangerous sport. But that was it, straight across, my But you know, you ignore it after a while. And they tell me if you live next to trains, you ignore those after a while. <laughs> Perhaps you were thinking, I'm not going into one of those for as long as possible. Yes. Uh, I don't think I even thought that, <laughs> that deeply about it. Okay. Um, this one comes from Neil Kirby, and he says that uh, you have said that you don't regard Formula One today as Grand Prix racing, yeah. uh, which we have discussed, yes. yes. But he then goes on to say, what year or when would you say that it, it, the big change came? It's difficult to put a, a single year on it, but um, I think, as again, as I say in this book, um, the the the, the, the rear-engine car mm. certainly made racing easier. Um, you know, uh, and in fact, I'm not going to name names, but there were some drivers who really hadn't got very far until the rear-engine. Uh, car came in and again I comment uh, I'm specific in the book as to why it was so much easier um, to drive than a front engine car and um, so I think you know there's slight diminution of the percentages contribution that a driver made to a successful car driver situation I think uh, something of diminution when you know the rear engine came along so it's but I don't think 60 that was, onwards 59 yes, 60 yes yes 59 mm. 60 um, but I think it was I think it was more uh, a question of when we got into serious aerodynamics uh, with the um, uh, the, the um, downforce, the downforce, and so on. And uh, you know, it seems to me that it's aerodynamics which are essentially um, uh, a problem today. I'm no I'm no aerodynamicist um, or um, mechanical engineer but it seems to me that the aerodynamics are, are what are creating many of our problems today and the, and the fact that you know the mechanical grip is you know is, is so uh, relatively unimportant so um, uh, you see the easier anything is to do the more people there are in the world that can do it so you know these uh, designers are so brilliant you know and um, you know, I mean, I would be one that perhaps uh, would suggest that we should have um, a world champion uh, uh, Grand Prix car designer. Well, we know uh, win that one, they, don't they, we? They, they, they are determining what happens today, you know, and um, uh, I would nominate Adrian Newey for that, uh, <laughs> for that award. I mean, what he's done with three quite different teams is, yeah. is quite phenomenal. And, you know, I mean, he's done such a fantastic... I mean, I suggest that perhaps Bernie should buy him out of the market because he's ruining the market, Adrian Newey. <laughs> Ruining it. <laughs> so, yes, no, but I anyway, think... coming back to the to the point, um, uh, you know, it's uh, I, so I think downforce uh, was where it is, is, is um, you know it began to get um, you know um, 
uh, you see, it became easier and easier because these air, these wretched designers were making such a good job of their job, you know, that it became easier and easier and easier to drive these cars. And um, and and I think uh, uh, you know, it's it's the technological progress which I think has uh, you know has created um, has created a problem. I mean, okay, you can still, with you're lucky, with one, two, three hundredths of a second, perhaps see you different between one driver and another. But how do you ever get them on the same level playing field? You don't know. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're not in the same car. They've got the wrong tyres, and they've got the situation where, well, if only my tyres had been four degrees warmer, I'd have done pole lap. You know, um, you know, it's it's the tech technology technology yeah, sure. that is sort of dominating the situation. Uh, you know, and, and leaving so much less for the driver to do. You see, I mean, in our day, you could win definitely win a race with less than the fastest car in the race. There's no way you can do that now unless your team with all their computer people back at the factory telling, calculating, is calculating that as to when. You know, it's a game of chess now. I mean, Max Mosley was sort of uh, ribbed uh, mercilessly a few years ago when he called Formula One a game of chess. I think it has become a game of chess now with these guys with the computers. You know, you do this and do that, you do this, you slow down. I mean, how many drivers are actually driving flat out from the drop of the flag to the finish these days? They can't. You know, the tires may fall off the the cliff. Um, the, uh, they, they they may run out of fuel. You know, so I mean, it's a coast. It's a technology calculation yeah. business all the time. You know, and the, the the contribution of the driver is is you know greatly greatly diminished. So really, what we want is to have all the current Grand Prix drivers in a field of Maserati 250Fs at Goodwood. Well, I think yes. that's the best suggestion I've heard so far. <laughs> what a brilliant idea! <laughs> not well, much wrong with that, Gordon. That's well, not. I think. Well, what a wonderful idea. Let, let, let's put that idea to Lord March, shall we? Yes. That's a brilliant idea. Why not? Um, one, one more question, Tony. It comes from Antoine Sire, and he wants to know who was your favourite co-driver. Let's talk about people for a change and not technical things. My favourite co-driver? Yeah. Well, it has to be Sterling, doesn't it? Um, we, um, we, um, in fact, I'm very, I was very pleased to, to that I drove for Aston Martin for four years, and I was very pleased that I signed off with them. Uh, winning the um, with my last race for them in '58, which was the Tourist Trophy, which Sterling and I uh, uh, won together. So um, you know that was a, a very uh, a very happy time. So you know it, it has to be it has to be Sterling. Yes. I mean, Moss and Brooks is a famous phrase in motor racing, isn't it? Well, if you say so. <laughs> I do. Say, I do say so. Yes, I do. I put that forward as a fact. Well, right. Thank you. Thank you. But Tony, in your book, you're you're. You're quite frank about all I'm the drivers you talk I'm all up front. You know? in, including Sterling. Yes. And uh, did, did you have reservations about talking about characteristics of his which might have reduced his success rate a little? Um, well, yes. Or was there anything you left out? Well, yes. I mean, I don't, I mean maybe the best way I could, I could answer that is, is you know... Um, could I perhaps read a little bit from from my book, which on the subject of, of Sterling, you, you know, because it's, a, it's the can. most concise uh, way. Because I mean, obviously, when you're writing a book, you've got time to think, and sure. you and hopefully yes, you, you cover all the things. But we've I mean, never had a talking book yeah, on before, um, and I think we should do it. Yeah. Um, Thank goodness Sterling Mosfrey survived. This is after he had this dreadful accident at uh, Easter Goodwood in '62. Uh, uh, yes, '62. 
He was a great, truly great driver, the best all-rounder, driving everything outstandingly well, including rally cars. He was the best in sports cars and would have won the Formula One Drivers' World Championship several times, as previously mentioned. Uh, um, and in chapter 14, I described the characteristics I believe made Fangio the great driver he was, and the physical ones applied equally to Sterling, who was also a great natural driver, yet I believe he had to push himself just that fraction harder than Fangio to psych himself up on occasions, as evidenced by the time he had to keep staring at the instruments instead of the road ahead to take a corner flat at Syracuse. That's one of his, uh, in one of his, uh, his books. He continued to hone his driving and I believe gained some speed in his later years to justify the mantle he inherited from Fangio. It was in strategy and tactics that the two seemed to differ, Fangio believing that the object was not to drive faster than was necessary to win the race, taking time to weigh up every situation, whereas, whereas Sterling would go like a bat out of hell from the drop of the flag and frequently seemed determined to demonstrate the extent of his superiority by winning by an unnecessarily large margin. The World Championships eluded Sterling because of what he did out of the car, not in it. He turned down an unbelievable offer from Ferrari in 1952 and seemed addicted to what I have called mechanical fiddling with his specials in an effort to provide himself with a faster car than the opposition, or at least with an edge, whereas all he needed was a car as good as the opposition plus reliability. In 1955, and therefore, he normally had a car on the pace, which I would have liked to have regularly enjoyed, but didn't due to some poor decisions. My competitive cars being confined to two years with Van Wall, one with Ferrari and four with Aston Martin. It was what Sterling did to produce a competitive car that was the problem. Sometimes it was a mongrel using an unreliable gearbox, other times a much modified standard car, and sometimes it was indecision between two marks at the same meeting. Fangio thought as clearly out of the cop as he did in it, achieving five world championships in four different factory cars. Uh, yeah, so good. I, I think that's yeah. as, as should... complete an answer as I can give you, concise. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I obviously thought it through very carefully, and everybody yeah. might disagree, but that's that was okay. my, my so view. Did I answer your your question? Yes, and Sterling's accepted what you said. It didn't he has. Well, in fact, I, I I wrote to him before the book came out and uh, told him all the bad news, and he accepted and rang it up, and very very complimentary about the book actually. So, one quick thing. I do remember long, long ago, you telling me about Monza in 57. Yes. About, and you were in the Van Wall and Fangio was in the 250F. Yes. At the very end of his career, in effect. Yes, yes. But I know he passed you. Yes. In a couple of unlikely places, didn't he? Yes. Was it Curva Grande? Curva Grande, it was. No, the same place. Yes, uh, he did it right, twice right. in succession, which is. Uh, <laughs> but you, you were highly impressed, weren't you? With, uh, I really was. You were highly impressed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, in fact, I made the fastest lap as a result of that instruction from Fangio. Uh, this is '57, the '57 Italian Grand Prix, and uh, uh, you know he passed me into the into Curva Grande, which is the really fast. Uh, corner after after the pits which have now ruined uh, like so many other corners but anyway leave that um, and and he passed me you know I thought I was going pretty quickly and he you know, passed me um, on the inside into that and um, so the next time ran a little bit faster and he blimey well um, still uh, passed me anyway the third time I'd gone that much faster and um, 
but still confident. It wasn't doing something that I didn't think was there. You know, I was watching what he was doing and I thought, well, you know, yes, that's that's something too uh, I can do. And um, so I did it and um, he passed me twice, but thereafter he wasn't able to pass me again. And um, as a result of the instruction by uh, um, by Fangio, I did in fact uh, clock the uh, fastest lap in the in the race, the Italian 57 Italian Grand Prix. And uh, and I say I, that raises another point because Sterling learnt so much from Fangio, following him round in the Mercedes in 55. And uh, Dennis Jenkinson reckons I think reckons that Sterling learnt you know more in that year following Fangio around they done in his previous uh, racing years you know maybe an exaggeration but it's certainly as I say it's, it's, in, it's in the book um, and uh, as I say it's certainly um, that certainly uh, was said apparently I don't think Sterling would, would deny that for a second Sorry? I don't think Sterling would deny that no no, no no I think that's a great place to stop I, I don't want to stop. We could go on for a long time with you, Tony, but you haven't actually told us what the book is called. Uh, well, it's called Poetry in Motion. Poetry in Motion. Poetry in Motion. And um, the title is, is a bit unusual, a racing book, but um, it's, um, it's because um, the, um, it was trying to convey the impression of drifting through a corner um, and uh, Spa is the classic circuit, but you you know do experience this poetry motion on all the circuits, um, uh, except perhaps not Monaco because yeah. you know it's slow. Maybe one one corner, um, because what you're doing is you are balancing the car on a tightrope, you know, 100, 110, 20, 30, maybe 40 miles an hour, uh, balancing the car on a tightrope, and almost by mental telepathy. Um, you are subconsciously, as it were, uh, caressing the steering wheel and the accelerator, keeping the car on this um, on, on this uh, uh, fine point, this fine rail, this this uh, tread wire, this tread wire, as it were, balancing it with all four tyres sliding relative to the road, and the sensor swinging from left to right. You know, to me, uh, to a racing driver. You know, is is poetry poetry motion? Um, it uh, it really is. In, in fact, um, well, fantastic. Go out and buy it. Is what I say. It's called Poetry in Motion. It's the autobiography of Tony Brooks, yeah. who's who's uh, actually produced a copy at this very moment. Well, no, I'm just going to read. Uh, you ah. know, as I say, you stop me a if, short uh, piece, if you're yes? bored. But. Um, it is difficult to describe the acceleration I got from driving around Spa, the wet road con contributing to the excitement and compensating for the reduced power of the Aston compared to that of a Grand Prix car, which I would experience at Spa later in my career. Swinging gently into a drift from the edge of the road, with all four tyres sliding relative to it, clipping the apex of the corner, then out again, gauging the sideways movement at speeds over 100 miles an hour so that it came naturally to an end just as the edge of the road on the exit dictated was a wonderful challenge inducing a state of ecstasy. An artist has a canvas and a paintbrush, a driver, a road and a steering wheel to be used with equal delicacy, tracing a pattern of beautiful curves to try and produce a work of art, the perfect lap. Fantastic. That's my attempt at right. well, if that, if that <laughs> justifying the title, Poetry Emotion. If yeah. that doesn't want yeah. to make you read more, I don't know what does. Well, thank you very much indeed, Tony. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you to Gordon Cruikshank and to our editor-in-chief, Nigel Roback. 
and of course to Alan, who does the sound, and we'll see you next time for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Bye-bye. Eu não posso, 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 eu não